Welcome to The Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. Hey, how's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as I do each and every week. This is episode 134. I hope everybody has had a great summer. Uh, We have, of course, been off uh, for the past uh, seven or eight weeks, enjoying our summertime break from the podcast Um, Lots of stuff going on in the world of music. I'm going to touch on a couple of those, but we have a great episode for you today. I am going to be joined by the legendary Roger Earl from Foghat right after this message from our sponsor, Los Cabos Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Los Cabos Drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Los Cabos Drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Los Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the US, Los Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Los Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center or heart of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Los Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Los Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at loscabosdrumsticks.com, follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Los Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Los Cabos Drumsticks. All right, guys and girls, as I mentioned before the break, we're going to be joined here in just a moment uh, by the legendary Roger Earl from Foghat. Just such a a gentleman and a wonderful drummer for many, many years. Uh, He also played in a little band called Savoy Brown, which was pretty awesome as well. Um, a couple of things that I want to touch on since we have been on break in, in uh, you know, July and August. Uh, of course, last week uh, we learned of the passing of the great Charlie Watts. And I would be remiss if I didn't at least mention Charlie here. Um, probably one of the biggest influences uh, in my drumming life. Uh, I would probably say he and, and John Bonham are the two biggest uh, in my life as a drummer. Uh, so uh, all of our good thoughts go out to Charlie's family and his bandmates in the Rolling Stones. Uh, so uh, again, hope everybody's having a great summer. I don't mean to be a bummer or, or have a, a, a down message there, but uh, I couldn't let it go without at least mentioning the great Charlie Watts here in my intro. Uh, Roger Earl is joining us. Uh, Foghat is out on the road this summer. Uh, they have a brand new live record out that we talk about with Roger. Um, you know, I, I want to say that Roger is probably getting close to 60 years of professional drumming now and still going strong absolutely sounds fantastic the band sounds fantastic uh and his attitude about it is just wonderful and you will hear that throughout this interview so please help me welcome to the drum shuffle podcast the great roger earl good afternoon roger how are you 
Jamie, I'm fine. I play drums in a rock and roll band, so life is good. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I have said on this show a million times, there's no greater job in the world than being a drummer in a rock and roll band. So congratulations to you. Yeah, it's it's, uh, been a long, strange trip. But, um, you know, I've said this before, but it's the truth. I am just one of those fortunate people in this world who gets to earn a decent living at something I love doing. And I play in a great band. I've always played with great players, great musicians. And I think that always, uh, that always helps raise your game because as a drummer, um, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, you could listen to people like Buddy Rich and say, wow, but, you know, that, that, that reach is just a little too far for such mere mortals such as myself. I, I hear you. Uh, but I did, I, I have seen, I did see Buddy one time, uh, quite a long time ago, one of our early tours over here. He, uh, he did a show in, in Manhattan at a club and I was about, I guess about 15, 20 feet away from him. And it was, um, that was spectacular. Yeah. He was special. Well, I mean, it's a religious experience to see, you know, those guys up close yeah. and personal, you know, it's just, um, the the brain can't hardly comprehend just how advanced they were as players, you know. No, you you can't. Um, I remember there was a, uh, there was a CD out burning for Buddy. You you may have been a, a number of you know great uh, contemporary drummers like played uh, some of his uh, songs and uh, tunes, I should say, and uh, and even they are like it's wow. You know, um, no, I'm, uh, I grew up, uh, listening to, um, you know, early rock and roll, you know, uh, little Richards, uh, stuff. Uh, Earl Palmer was the drummer, I believe on the early stuff out of New Orleans and, uh, Freddie Bilo who played with, uh, um, on the chess records and a lot of, uh, stuff there. And Francis Clay, who was, uh, probably one of my earliest influences. He was Muddy Waters' drummer at, uh, live at Newport, uh, 1960, 61. So that, that's what I grew up listening to and wanted to sort of emulate. I was always, uh, it's always about, for me, it was always about the song, about the music. I grew up listening to, you know, rock and roll and then, you know, discovered, you know, where that came from, you know, uh, blues and rhythm and blues. And of course, you know, bebop, you know, jazz, that's sort of where the rock and roll is actually sort of got it from um you know that's uh, that's where i started kind of stayed there too <laughs> sure absolutely well and you know i mean i think it's interesting and, and maybe you can add some color on this but you know all of uh, and i don't know if it's a cultural thing or not but it seems like um the the guys that grew up in the you know 50s and 60s in the uk took to the American blues more so than the guys that were growing up here in the States. I think, I think we exported a lot of that to the UK and, you know, guys such as yourself, John Bonham, Charlie Watts, you know, Ringo to a certain extent took that American rhythm and blues stuff and the American jazz stuff and incorporated that into their own playing, you know, because I, I mean, you know, the stuff that John Bonham did, for example, most of it came directly from jazz or, you know, early American rock and roll or rhythm and blues. And I think you are absolutely part of that lineage. Would you agree with that? Yeah. uh, You know, now that I would compare myself with the uh, great John Bonham, uh, I actually, I met John a number of times, but yes, that, that, that my influence was the same. It was always American music. I mean, America gave music to the world. You know, jazz, blues, rock and roll, country, uh, you know, uh, religious music. Um, It was, you know, a a lot of it was, you know, obviously, you know, with uh, the Africans coming here. But it was also like melodies from, um, you know, Scottish uh, folk songs, even French uh, songs, English sort of folk music. That, you know, America was this beautiful melting pot for music and you know it gave music to the world and of course then the english sort of took it back and said oh we'll have some of that and then put our spin <laughs> on it but it 
America gave music to the world, still does to this day, as far as I can, you know, contemporary music, um, America's, American artists, like, influenced the world. Um, uh, like, when I first came here in 1968, I think it was my first visit with, when I was in Savoy Brown, it felt like I was coming home. Um, it was, uh, I love this country and uh, the, the, the music and... Uh, you guys talk a little funny, but it's uh, <laughs> well, all about the music. <laughs> we we do talk a little funny, especially down here where I live in the South. You know, we <laughs> that, that, that's where music comes from. Yeah, for New sure. Orleans. We, we we would be uh, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about New Orleans and what, what you know the, um, influence that sort of area had on on the land and the world of music. I mean. It's always been like a magical place. I remember the first time I went there, it was like walk, walking down the streets of New Orleans. And I'm like, wow. It was, uh, yeah, it was pretty heady stuff from a boy from Southwest London. Yeah, for sure. And, I, you know, I mean, I've been playing now, gosh, going on 30 years probably. And I still don't know how to properly, you know, play that second line stuff. You know, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> I think you're either born with it or you're not. And I was clearly not. So, um, you know. Well, you know, it, it, it depends on the song. A lot of, you know, um, a lot of the stuff that you could play doesn't always translate. You know, it, 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 for me, the drums are like, you're you're there to support the song, support the the rhythm, and help set you know the feel of, of the song. Um, uh, and sometimes you know that more finer stuff, you know the second stuff and shuffle, especially with shuffles, it doesn't always translate unless, of course, you're Bernard Purdy, and <laughs> he can translate anything. <laughs> Do you, have you ever, there's a, a special out a Rita Franklin special. Um, that was recorded back in 1970, 71 by, I think, the record company. It's something worth checking out because Bernard is playing uh, drums on that and it's just a beautiful... And it's, I think it's set in a church, uh, but it's just an absolutely fantastic-sounding, um, uh, I don't know what you would call it, musical event. And uh, I love Aretha as well. I mean, she's a, she's a queen as far as I'm concerned of music. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's a voice that can never be, uh, you know, God will never create that voice again, I don't think, you know, so, um, so you know, I, I, what I find interesting about your career, of course, everybody knows you from Foghat, and, and you know, that, that was, um, you know, has been the vehicle for the, the majority of your success, but you mentioned the great Savoy Brown earlier, and, you know, I, you guys put out, I want to say, like five or six records in literally a two-year period, like 68, 69. You put out just a whole bunch of music, um, lots of recordings in a very short period of time before you guys went off to, you know, form Foghat. But, you know, the, the Raw Sienna record is still considered one of the great blues rock records of all time anywhere. Um, did you have any idea at that time what you guys were creating and what a legacy that band would leave? Um, you know, I, I, one of the things about what was really cool for me, because it was the first... Um, you know, professional band I was in. I've been playing drums in a band since I was 17. I've been playing since I was, I took lessons when I was 12, I started. But um, when I joined Savoy Brown, um, I was pretty much given a free hand. Nobody told me what to do or what not to do. Um, uh, and Chris Jordan, the, the lead singer for the first uh, three or four albums I did with Savoy, was an incredible singer, especially, you know, an English singer. He had this fantastic sort of blues R&B voice and was a really talented multi-instrumentalist. He could play guitar, piano. And it was his influence, I think, and his songwriting that really made that early stuff with Savoy Brown. I mean, Kim, of course, was a great guitar player and, and you know, the other players in the band were good. But it was... It was Chris Jordan's influence on on the songs and the way 
he wrote. He, it, you know, we didn't. Savoy Brown didn't uh, like um, copy or emulate other, you know, American blues artists. We were influenced by it, obviously, um, but we didn't like copy note for note the tunes. Uh, Chris gave the band um, a real identity, as did Lonesome Dave as well. Dave was, uh, you know, when he took over singing after Chris left, he did the same thing. It was like they took their influence of of, uh, American blues and R&B music, but they lent their lyrics and their approach to it, which I think made uh, Savoy Brown at those early records uh, so special and why the band actually sort of did so well because it was we weren't copying anybody we took the influences of American music but we put our own stamp on it and and I always had a free hand uh, nobody told me what to do or what not to do it was like I'm the drummer you know do what you do and um, it was a great experience in fact the first time um, I played with a big band like there was like you know about 50 12 Horns or something, um, a little Milton song, uh, Grits Ain't Groceries, Eggs Ain't Poultry, Mona Lisa was a man. Um, we were, I, I knew the arrangement, and uh, I'm like 20 years old, and I'm in this room with all these jazzers, and they're all reading music, and uh, I've forgotten how to read. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm sitting there, and I'm a little nervous, but I, I know the song, and I've got the arrangement, and, um, and the producer was really cool. And uh, anyway, we we start the song off and uh, we do it once, then we do it a second time, uh, and that's it. And I'm sitting there, and then a couple of the horn people come up to me and they go, and they're older, they're like in 30s, 40s, maybe even 50s, and I'm 20 years old, and they say, hey, you, hey kid, you were really good, you know, we we can hear you, we can't usually hear our drummer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and that was... That was a thrill playing live in in the studio with uh, you know a, a huge horn section like that. That was uh, that was one of the things that I took from those early days. It was like that was a thrill. I mean, the power of horns, like you know, when you've got a big horn section like that, it's uh, it's exciting. And uh, yeah, that my tenure in Savoy Brown was um, was a big learning curve and a lot a lot of fun. In fact, some accused us of maybe having too much fun, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 what is the, uh, the, the phrase that, uh, you know, that they use in death inquiries in the UK death by misadventure. Is that, is that what they say? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I've, I've been fortunate. I, I, I missed out on most of that stuff. Uh, um, I think I've been, I've been, you know, I've been very fortunate in my career, um, you know, with with who I played with. I always played with great musicians. Even, uh, you know, the very first band I was in um, it was the friends from school, um, and they've been playing since they were like nine, ten years old. So when I joined the band when I was sixteen or seventeen, um, they were already way ahead of me. I had a lot of catching up to do. But um, you know, musicians, I think. Certainly musicians that are successful, I think we're probably a pretty selfish bunch because um, that's all you think about. Um, but anyway, I'm talking, I guess I'm talking from my own point of view, like it's, it's the music comes first, playing comes first, practicing comes first. That, that overrides, you know, everything, uh, life, health, um, earning living. I mean, because musicians were typical, you know, uh, yeah, no, we'll play. How much we get paid? You don't get paid anything. Okay, I'll be there. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's, you know, we're, we're fools for the music. We can't help ourselves. Um, and I, I, you know, there are, I have lots of friends, you know, that are, that are players that don't earn a living doing it. But they're the same. They're, they're, they're just dedicated. They love what they do. I'm just one of those fortunate few who got to sort of... Uh, earn a living doing it and make it. But it's also, I think, because, you know, everything else takes the second place to music. Musicians, we just can't help ourselves. And drummers, they're the worst. I, I agree <laughs> com- completely. Um, 
you know what I find interesting, you know, and, and I, I think you could probably provide a very unique perspective on this, but, you know, the music industry has changed so much just over your career. I mean, you've been at this for quite some time now, but, you know, I mean, you hear the stories and, and I'm sure Foghat is no different. You know, you and, and Lonesome Dave go out to, to form Foghat in, you know, 1970 and, you know, you had some success, but I think 75 was was the year that, you know, the, the record came out that kind of changed everything. But I'm sure those early records, you guys probably weren't seeing a lot of money from those. Um, and nowadays, it's even harder to make money from recording. Uh, am I wrong in, in saying that? No, you're right. Um, I get I get. Um they get checks and like they write out, um, you know, where it's uh, where it's all come from. I didn't know you could chop up a penny that many times. Uh huh. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, it's like fractions of a penny. Um, Foghat has been uh, pretty uh, fortunate in that, you know, um, from a commercial point of view, like, you know, because Slow Ride, Fall for the City, other songs, uh, you know, have been in uh, films. Uh, film scores, uh, 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 you know, a whole bunch of games, game shows, car game shows, um, and even if it wasn't our version of the song, the, the the song itself resonated like Slow Ride or Fall for the City or um, Driving Wheel or Home in My Hand or, you know, there was a bunch of songs. So we were fortunate in that. I remember when um, Guitar Hero first came out and they – um, and it was all new, and I heard about it afterwards. That uh, the song it wasn't our performance. They uh, used studio musicians, and uh, and a few other bands that were on the Guitar Hero were upset because they weren't asked for whatever reason to do it. You can't get that kind of publicity. Yeah, I mean we had uh, we had like six year old kids coming to our concerts with their mums and dads like <laughs> digging fog hat singing slow ride it's like that you know and i think that that's also helped like the longevity of the band i mean we always took our playing seriously but the fact that we've been you know in commercials car commercials uh, uh games and stuff uh, our generations have heard of this band and heard our music and um uh, it, we've always, this band's always been careful about our playing. And I mean, you probably noticed we had a number of live things out and it was always about the music. It was always about being able to play, being on, you know, being on top of your game, you know, being tight. Um, you know, we don't get drunk on stage and, and play and, and stone and wander around though. I may have played with a hangover or two over the years, but, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, the only time that ever happens is like, you know, if you're going to go out jamming the local bars and stuff, you can get a little loose. But when you're playing on stage with this band, it's, it's you know, people pay good money to come and see you. And it's, you know, it's kind of a, you have a, um, or I feel that you have a responsibility, you know, to your fans, to your audience, you, you know, to, to sort of give it your best shot. Um, and I still, to this day, I, I get chills just before I go on stage. It's all right once I do the first count and we get going, but you know, we just played, um, we've just done three shows so far this year because of the COVID nightmare, but we just played uh, the moon dance jam in Minnesota. There was like uh, 13, 15,000 people there, hot, dry, sunny day. And it was just. To, to get out of there at like eight o'clock in the evening and see that sea of humanity just waiting for us to sort of play those first chords was, it was a thrill and I still get chills. And actually, um, Todd Rundgren was also on the bill. He was closing the show. He was a, another artist on our record label, uh, Bearsville Records. And Todd was absolutely fantastic. I can see why people why he had such a huge fan base. His band was tighter than a duck's ass, and that's Walter tight. And his, his stage persona, and then his singing, and his guitar playing was fantastic. I hadn't seen Todd since 
1974. He helped us out on our first couple of albums. He played guitar. He did some rough mixes for us. He played piano on some songs. Um, so I hadn't seen Todd since 74, but his voice and his playing was brilliant and his band was brilliant too. So, uh, yeah, I'm one of those fortunate few. I get out there and I love my work. Well, and, and rightly so. And, and, you know, I think you said the key thing there is you guys have always taken your live show so seriously. And, you know, that's one thing, you know, and I don't want to, I'm not trying to cast stones at anyone, but there are some bands that are still out there that you're like, they, they probably shouldn't still be doing this, right? It's just not, it's just not good. And, I understand everybody needs to make a living I, and I'm not faulting anyone for that. But if you can't get through a whole show without some disaster happening and, and especially in this <laughs> you know day and age of YouTube and everybody has a camera in their pocket, you know, um, you guys are still firing on all cylinders. And, you know, I, I'm one of the guys of the generation that, you know, I really got into Foghat after the movie Dazed and Confused. You know, of course, okay. I had heard the songs, but that movie was so iconic, you know, when I was a, a, a you know, a high school age student or, or college age, that movie came out. And Slow Ride being, you know, kind of the main song in that movie, I was just like, God, what a great song. What a great band. And then <laughs> then you start really digging in hard, right? And and buying all the records. And the records are great, but you guys were always first and foremost a live band, which I think leads really well into the fact that that you know, you guys just put out a new live record uh in mid-July, and it is phenomenal, Roger. It's great. Thank you. <laughs> You're, you're welcome. Uh, it's um, you know it's uh, it's it's what we do. Um, it's uh, yeah, it did it did tu it turned out really well. Uh, we don't normally get a chance to play, you know, a small club as Daryl's House Club in Upstate New York in Pauling, and um, we were doing a four day run. We had a sprinter band. Normally we fly everywhere, but all the all the dates were between three and four hundred miles of each other, so we were driving. And in fact, the day we did the show in uh, Daryl's house club, um, it was like a seven-hour drive. We got there and we set up, but the club was fantastic. The people who run it, um, they have a fantastic uh, board there to record. They had a five-camera high-def shoot. Um, it's like this, and it's a wooden, it's all a wooden stage, wooden room, So, which drums sound good in wooden rooms. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and... Uh, they were just really professional and uh it was it worked um after the, after the show we went in and had a listen to uh you know the the, the rust and everybody said wow um there was there there was some what can i how can i put it there was some youthful enthusiasm on most of the songs um it was and it worked uh, brian bassett our leading slide guitar player is our uh, chief engineer. He's uh, produced and mixed our last four studio albums and any live stuff we do. Um, he's a brilliant uh, engineer as well. Um, and he mixed the album. Uh, a, friend, a good friend of ours out here on Long Island where I live edited the uh, video for the DVD. And everything is sort of like... Uh, um, and then four maniacs in your living room. <laughs> and because <laughs> any, any previous DVDs we'd had were all taken from live shows, this is like up close and personal. And I, I think it it really worked. It sounded good. It looked good. And it's, um, it was a real personal statement. I, I was, I'm really pleased with the way it turned out. And, and all the, the fans that I've seen that have reviewed it, seem to uh, concur they're all happy with it uh, one one review said why why couldn't we have uh, included uh, more songs from our you know, 20 something albums well I don't know, that'd be 300 songs <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we I mean we played for an hour and 40 minutes anyway so it was um, 
there's only so much time. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I, I, I don't know of anybody that wants to sit down and listen to a 17 hour live record. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. No, no, not me either. <laughs> so, but I mean, it really is a, a great record. It's called eight days, uh, on the road. Um, and I, I would imagine you kind of keyed me in there. You said, yeah, we normally fly everywhere, but we were in a sprinter van for that run of shows. So it probably felt like, uh, in four days, eight days on the road. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. actually more like 80,000 days on the road. Right. But, uh, mm. you know, the thing is when, as you know, you're, when you're a musician is careful what you wish for. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Um, I, you know, it's so hard for me to try to explain, and I try to do it on this show, but I, I typically let my guests, you know, relay their stories. But for somebody that's a non-musician, and we do have some non-musicians that listen to the show, um, it's impossible to explain what it's like being trapped in a van with four or five other human beings um, you know, traveling around to get to have fun for about an hour and a half every day. And then you've got the other 22 and a half hours that you have to put up with somebody else's bullshit. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's hard yeah. to, it's hard to put that into words. Yeah. You know what? Um, we've, uh, with this band, generally speaking, um, we we get uh, the current band. We've we've been well. Brian's been with us uh, uh, twenty four years. Charlie Hune, our lead uh, singer and lead guitar player, has been with us twenty twenty one years. Rodney O'Quinn just joined us four years ago after we lost our original bass player Craig McGregor to cancer. Um, so it's not like it's a new band. Um, you know, we've been playing for like over twenty years together. Um, we get on really well. Uh, we we can hang out, um, and every single one of them like take their their work seriously. Um, and we've been known to have more than our fair share of fun out there. But uh, <laughs> it's you know you're sitting in the van, you either take a nap, you've got your headphones on, you're uh, you're listening to music. Um, I usually sit up in the front of the van when we do that, and I drive the the, the driver crazy because I'm playing away on my uh, pad <laughs> and uh, you know making holes in the dashboard. Uh, but um, it's yeah, it's, it's hurry up and wait, but it's always worth it. You know, you get there, and and even if you're tired, you know, and you've been sitting for like six or seven or eight hours, as soon as you get there, it's everything changes. You, you, you get into like live mode. You, you know, you have a cup of coffee, wake the fuck up and, and start playing. It's like, it's, uh, music is magic. You know, it's, um, and I know how fortunate I am to be involved in this. It's, uh, I love what I do. Well, you know, and, and we're glad, we're all glad that you're still out there doing it, you know? And I mean, I think, it's, I feel like I'm safe in saying you could have hung it up a long time ago and been just fine. You know, you, you don't have to do this, but you have to do this. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I do have to do it. Um, well, actually, um, I love to fish, but I don't think I'm that good enough for fishermen that I could earn a living at it. It's not that I want to. <laughs> right on. Uh, um, no, it's, I, I enjoy it too much. And I, I think if ever, well, actually having this like year and a half off because of the COVID nightmare, um, it was actually okay for me. I really enjoyed it. You know, I'm at home. I live on Long Island with, uh, with my wife and, uh, you know, I got to go eat the vegetables in the garden this year. Yeah. Uh, mowed the lawn, worked on the house. Um, you know, I got my pads upstairs in, in the spare bedroom and I have a, I have a shed outside where my drums are set up, but after after about three or four months, you know, I I sit down and practice for like a couple of hours each day. But after three or four months, I'm going. I don't know when I'm going to play again. And when we actually started, you know, a, you know, it looked like it was okay to go out and play. To, to be honest with you, I was more concerned about other people. 
I was I was safe. I got my shots. You know, my children couldn't see me because you know they would go be at the other end of the garden on occasion and wave to me. But other people, other, you know, this disease out there was was killing people, and I was more concerned about our fans turning up, and I didn't want to have any kind of responsibility for people getting ill. So we waited until it looked like it was going to be safe to go out there. And uh, I don't know if it is, but, um, you know, we, we all got vaxxed in the, in the band and our crew. Um, you know, it was, it's real. Um, the sad part, I mean, I'm not getting too, uh, political about this, but the fact that people were like playing down the fact that this kills people, it was, and the misinformation that's out there is sad. The only thing I can say about this is talk to your doctor. Yeah. Any of those who feel that they don't want to get vaxxed. It's, it's also about there's a number of people out there who can't get vaccinated, who have, uh, you know, diseases or, or cancer and, or, or, or com- who are in trouble one way or another and they can't get vaccinated. It's those people that you're protecting. It's those people that you care about. This is not about, this is not a political statement. This is not, it's about being safe and saving other people. Um, talk to your doctors. That The doctor will give you advice as to whether it's okay or not. And yes. uh, no, I guess I should leave it at that before I start rambling on. <laughs> well, I, well, I mean, I agree completely. And, you know, my motivations are, are much more selfish than that even. It's, you know, until a certain percentage of folks do right. what they need to do, I can't go out and make a living, you know. Um, right. And, you know, I'm not certainly not touring the world in, in a successful band like Foghat, but I am a working musician. And, you know, um, thankfully, I've always had a day job, you know, and and I can feed my family. But when you take away, you know, 10, 12, $15,000 a year of income that I feel Mm -hmm. that, you know what I mean? So um, until, you know, and I don't want to be part of the problem and putting, you know, 800 people in a bar together that that when it's unsafe, I don't want that responsibility so until yeah, it, it, you're you're right yeah you're right um, also when when this happened um, we, we normally will will start booking our flights a minimum of a month in advance so when the the covid nightmare our last show was um, we played uh, in Las Vegas at the Golden Nugget that that when COVID hit and and it was just starting to get rampant out on the West coast. And, uh, we had about 30 or $40,000 in airfares that we paid and the airlines wouldn't give it back to us. I mean, now you're, you're out of work for a year and a half. You know, we had responsibilities to our crew. Uh, and it was, it was a little tough for a while. We could have done with that money back to help support people. But, um, we actually got through okay. Um, everybody in the band is safe. Uh, nobody got ill. You know, we lost some uh, friends and family, um, you know, passed from COVID, but everybody in, in the Fog Hat immediate family is okay. We actually, um, we have some newborns now. I have uh, a, a new niece who's, what, four months old. I have, uh, I have another nephew who's due in the next week or two, I have uh, a niece and nephew, a great niece and nephew in England that I haven't seen. They're two and a half. Uh, oh, wow. So, uh, you know, life goes on. Uh, so I have things to look forward to and I have new faces that I've got to uh, entertain. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and that's the next generation, right? I mean, we, yeah, right. you know, my longtime band, we talk about it all the time. You know, our kids are getting up into their teens now and we keep saying, you know, that's the next generation that's going to take the band on, you know, and keep that name alive. Um, and I, I, I don't, I don't know how, how bands actually function these days. I mean, I remember, growing up in London and, e- and even over here in the States when we moved here in 1973, 
But growing up in London, like in the 60s, we could rent rooms as, as kids when I was 17 years old, the first band I was in. We'd rent a room above a pub or a union hall or something and put the band on. Whereas now it's like, I, I don't know how young musicians actually manage to actually play somewhere and do something. There again, having said that, um, where there's a will, there's a way, right? Absolutely. You know, I mean, I yeah. think... I think nowadays for the real young guys, you know, the, the, the guys that are still school age, you have to have cool parents. I mean, that's the bottom line. You have to have parents that will let you, you know, go in the basement or the garage or, or whatever the case may be to, mm-hmm. to to make that racket until it forms into something, you know. And I, I was fortunate, you know, I mean, I, I'm a child of, of you know, the, the late 70s and, you know, in the 80s when I started putting bands together, my mom was cool about it. She was like, just have everybody over. You can have the basement or have the garage. And that's the only way, you know, um, how, how? Yeah, same with me for when sure. I was growing up. Well, and I know um, I know you came from a musical family. Your your dad was uh, was a piano player, right? Yeah, he played somewhat like um, uh, Fats Waller, you know, like heavy handed, like sure. Honey Rose um, stuff like that. Um, you know, he came from the East End of London, so it was like a, a pub piano player, and he sang. But there was in our house, it was always music. Dad and mum. Uh, music was a big part of our family. There was always the radio was always on. Uh, we used to, uh, my older brother got a Grundig tape recorder and would tape musical shows off of the BBC, you know, off the speakers. And anytime there was something special, a special coming on, we would tape them and then we'd have this music. It was, um, and my father, when I, when I eventually got my first drum kit and, uh, when I was 15 and I first joined the band. I mean, I used his woodwork shed, which eventually became six foot by six foot by six and a half feet high because it was so soundproofed because, you know, we had a semi-detached house. <laughs> sure. And, uh, and there's four of us in this room. Like, uh, it was pretty strange stuff. But, yeah, my, my parents were very supportive. Um, you know, I had to pay for my drums and everything. I worked after school, but dad signed on the dotted line. He said, you know, you've got to pay, make the payment, son. But, uh, yeah, I had, I had, um, I had really cool parents. My mum and dad were, uh, you know, beautiful people. And uh, I was real fortunate in that way. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think all drummers have to have supportive parents. Otherwise you're not going to be a drummer for many, for very long, you know? <laughs> No, no, you know, it was like uh, bang, bang, tap, tap. I mean, before I actually got a pair of sticks, I was always like using the knives and forks on Mum's Best China and the lampshades. And uh, yeah. it was, uh, yeah, I probably drove them up the wall, but uh, they tolerated me rather well. Well, I mean, it's fantastic. <laughs> and, I, and I'm glad they did because, you know, you, yeah, same you, you guys have just released such an incredible catalog of music. Um, and, and, you know, look, I, I don't want to, uh, you know, uh, try to paint you into a corner here. But, you know, wh- what does the future hold for Foghead? I mean, obviously, you guys are on the road through, I want to say, October, September, October. I've seen the dates. Yeah. Um, you know, what's what's in the cards? Or is there going to be another original album at some point? Or, or are you kind of just playing it day by day at this point? Uh, no, in fact, we started working on, well, actually work, putting together, I, uh, I have a studio. I, we have a studio down in Deland, Florida. That's where we record everything, mix and rehearse. Um, it's on 10 acres in the middle of nowhere. We can make as much noise as we want. Uh, we've got a couple of the locals keep an eye on the place when we're not there and, um, we can open the doors and play and they're, they're fine with it. Um, it, it, we went, uh, I went down, I put new heads on the drums, tuned everything. Uh, we got some new microphones to use and we turned on the board and it didn't work. Now we've had the board for what, 20, 20 odd years down there and it just stopped working. So, uh, Brian, that's it. Um, I said, look, 
just get a new board. I mean, it's not like it used to be, you know, with a knee board, which is two million bucks. Uh-huh. You know, you can get you can get a, 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 a something that works great for anywhere between I don't know three and ten thousand dollars, whatever, or maybe even less. You know, people do it with their computer. It's so making music or being able to make music. Um, that side of it has, has got a lot more reasonable, except. Maybe the cost of microphones, that, that can be expensive, you know, getting really good mics. And more importantly, probably having somebody who has the ability to do that and has the ears. So that, that's where we're fortunate with having Brian. Um, but anyway, yeah, we, we ordered a new board. Um, we'll probably start making the new record. In between, you know, we'll come off the road and like in between that, we'll have a couple of days, we'll go down to Florida. We've got about seven or eight songs that we've talked about doing. Some of them are originals, some of them non-originals uh, that we've got arrangements for. Um, we do that usually, that gets the juices flowing. We play some other people's songs just to get everything going and, you know, get the sounds right and take it from there. We'll also have some guests. Um, Scott Holt will probably uh, sing on some stuff and play guitar. He, he was um, the second guitar player with Buddy Guy. Kim Simmons um, from Savoy Brown. Uh, I, we did a show with him the other day just outside Chicago, and uh, he said that he has um, a song that he thinks will work with Foghat, so he'll come and uh, we'll have a connection there. Um Kim and I have stayed friends over the years, so uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, we're gonna. Uh, how's it go? I'm gonna roll till I'm old and rock till I drop. <laughs> to quote the great <laughs> Lonesome Dave, that's fantastic. That's right. Oh, I love it. Well, you know, I mean, I, I'm looking forward to it, and you know, I'm gonna encourage all of you know our listeners. Go pick up the new live record. It came out on July 16th, uh, eight days from the road. Uh, it's a great live record. I mean, it, it truly is. It sounds phenomenal. Your playing is wonderful, Roger. Um, you know, so I'm going to encourage everybody to pick it up and check it out. Um, one of the traditions here on the Drum Shuffle podcast is we always ask our guests as we get ready to wrap up, we ask our guests for a good piece of advice. And I know you're full of good advice for other drummers. So I don't know about that. <laughs> What, what's something that you would tell everybody? This is something you should do to be successful in this industry. Uh, yeah, being, being in the right place at the right time. Um, never, never give up on, you know, your passion for, for playing. The hardest part really is to like, I, I think is to find a band, you know, to work, to function as a band, you know, um, as individual musicians, I guess, you know, if you can go out and play with different bands. The hardest part is to actually be in a band and keep a band functioning and together. But I think, you know, uh, don't lose your passion for music. Cause that's, that's what drives you. That's what enables you to do what you do. That's what enables people to enjoy and sit out there and uh, like dig what you're doing. It's, it's about passion and and you you can you when you go to see bands you can tell if somebody you know whether it's a guitar player or or the drummer or the singer if they're passionate about what they do you you can it it comes across Mm -hmm. and yeah be passionate about what you do and 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 care about what you do that's what's going to get you through that's when i get you through to the other side and i think that's what's going to make it worthwhile for you as, as a musician you know because you're not going to get you're not going to get rich to, um you know playing out but you do it because you love to play you play it because you love what you do if you keep your passion uh life will be good to you yeah that's man that's that that's good advice and uh listen i i really appreciate you taking time to come on the show and talk with us we got to do it again. So keep us posted on everything. When Fogat has a new record, let me know. We will gladly have you back anytime your schedule will allow. Okay, Jamie. Jamie, it was a pleasure talking to you. And thank you. And uh, hey, keep on rocking. Absolutely. You too. Thanks, Roger. Bye-bye. See ya.
All right, guys and girls, that's going to wrap up episode 134 of the Drum Shuffle podcast. Thanks sincerely to each and every one of you for tuning in. We simply cannot do this show without each and every one of you guys tuning in and listening, downloading, streaming the podcast each and every week. A million thanks to Roger Earl for taking time out of his busy schedule to come on and talk to us. Uh, what a great guy, huh? I mean, I just still going strong after all these years and his attitude um, is just amazing to me. And uh, we, we thank him for his time. Hey, if you want to help out the Drum Shuffle podcast, the biggest thing that you can do for us is share a link with a friend. Uh, as we continue to grow the podcast, we have more and more listeners every week. And for that, I'm truly grateful and thankful to each and every one of you for sharing a link with a friend. It helps us more than you'll ever know, and it costs you absolutely nothing. And we do appreciate your efforts there. We answer every single email that we get here at the Drum Shuffle Podcast. That email address is thedrumshufflepodcast at gmail.com. Our web address is thedrumshuffle.com, and you can always find more information on me over at jamieeds.com. We have some interviews coming up for you over the next few weeks that you are certainly not going to want to miss. Next week, I'm going to be joined by our old friend, Doug Cosmo Clifford from Credence Clearwater Revival. He's got a new record out that is absolutely fantastic or about to come out, I should say. And we talked to him all about that. And um, Doug has just been such a, a blessing in my life to get to know him and to become my friend. So he's going to join us next week. So you're not going to want to miss that. Your homework assignment for this week, go see a live band if it is safe for you to do so before all live music goes away. So until next time, may your head stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, everybody. Cheers.